Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Trent Greener. Trent is an Exos contractor and currently serves as the Human Performance Program Coordinator at NATO Special Operations Headquarters. Before joining the Special Operations community, Trent spent 25 years in U.S. collegiate athletics as a sports performance coach at Purdue University, Northern Illinois University, University of Wyoming, Oregon State University, and the University of Washington. Previously, he served as the Human Performance Coordinator for multiple human performance teams that worked with the United States Army Intelligence Support Activity throughout the greater Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland areas. He has trained nearly every available college athletic team, both male and female, and has helped well over 100-plus athletes move directly from collegiate sport into the National Football League, National Basketball League, Major League Baseball, and elite-level athletic platforms all over the world. Trent holds a Bachelor of Science and Master's of Science in Physical Education from the University of Wyoming. He's also certified by the NSCA as a Strength and Conditioning Specialist and a Registered Strength and Conditioning Coach with distinction. And the key lessons he has learned from his years of experience working with tactical personnel. In this episode, Trent talks about his move from college strength and conditioning to human performance within special operations, putting together and managing a human performance program within special operations, Good afternoon, Trent, and welcome to the podcast. John, thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. Very happy to be here. I appreciate you taking the time out, mate, to come speak to me. Uh, obviously, me and you have chatted a little bit back and forth over social media, and having previous guests on in your colleagues of Kate Colvin and Josh Fletcher, both very uh, spoke very highly of you. So it was natural. I just wanted to get you on and just pick your brains about some of the work you've been doing. That sounds great. Yeah, I've, I've, I've enjoyed my time with them and, and everything we've done is, is a team effort. So uh, I really appreciate them. And I probably owe them a couple of euros or something for putting in the kind work for me. <laughs> uh, they're good, good people. Uh, Trent, obviously, got a very, uh, very background in that and we'll dive into that in a little bit. But for anyone who isn't familiar with you and the work you've done, can you just give us a little bit of a background on, you know, where your career started and, you know, where you're at currently now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, I really started in, and it, it goes back to youth sports, right? So played mm-hmm. all the sports and, and um, there was a kind of a seminal moment when I was in, in ninth grade, I started becoming a, a competitive power lifter and I, I started lifting just to do better at sport. And that were really, uh, the instructor took me under the wing and uh, I was with a good group of people really in an early high performance gym. Uh, just because of the things that were going on there. So that was back in the mid-80s, 1980s. So uh, from that point on, you know, I kind of had this understanding. I, I knew what I wanted to do at a very early age. And mm-hmm. so I, I've been blessed to be able to follow that career path. Uh, and so that took me to the university setting where I was a collegiate athlete uh, back in America. We played American football. And so, again, I, I really understood that I wasn't highly talent talented, but being able to do the things that brought my, my low level of talent to a higher level, I really understood that performance training, strength conditioning, all the components and all the aspects of that can really elevate performance. So I was very in tune to that. I did understand that process. And shortly thereafter, uh, knowing that I wanted to be a coach and strength and conditioning in 1988 wasn't really a big industry. So um, I, I graduated as soon as my last game was over in December. I started coaching at the university there and began my coaching career. So I stayed for 25 years in the U.S. university system, so the collegiate strength and conditioning environment. And you know, I was very blessed. I, I had great mentors and I had great people along the way as, as strength conditioning itself and, and performance training really evolved and developed you know you used to go in and what do you bench and what do you squat and Mm -hmm. what can you power clean and then it became a little bit more nuanced and and all these things started to grow so I was able to coach at uh, you know Purdue University Northern Illinois University of Wyoming which is my alma mater and then I had a long career as an assistant and actually took my first head job uh, at Oregon State University and started developing systems when I was an assistant but when you put that hat on, it becomes a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was able to be a head strength and conditioning coach. Sports performance, it really started to grow into it at Washington, back at Wyoming. And then 
there was this moment uh, back in the early mid mid 2000s 2010 post 9/11 where the the whole concept of human performance from a sport aspect bled over into the tactical aspect and so uh, my career path took a little bit of a change uh, when the U.S. military and the soft community stood up these human performance programs and I was blessed to end up as a human performance advisor and lead um, at a uh, for a great group we had a, a large team that we covered Maryland and the mid-Atlantic states Virginia outside of Washington DC and then uh, was there for several years and then had the opportunity to come to Belgium and be in the situation that I'm in now so kind of moved from that sports performance area where it's all about you know some very distinct measurables to the tactical community and, uh, and have been here for the last several years. Obviously going from being a you know collegiate football player and then making the move into SN, uh, strength conditioning coaching did you go like back then did you go the, the the route of internship GA and then assistant or did you go directly into like an assistance role or GA role? Yeah so uh, as soon as I was done playing uh, and, and again I I was always in my ear. So I was very blessed in college to have one of, you know, the burgeoning strength conditioning programs. And my head strength conditioning coach came from one of the, probably the most famous strength conditioning program in the U.S., Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to move in and out of that. And so as soon as I was done playing, uh, I went right into, uh, I had another semester of school. I went right into the university setting that I graduated from started as a volunteer assistant and then moved into a graduate assistant position for a couple of years and then took on my first assistant job, worked that for several universities and then moved into uh, a head position. Yes. So cut my chops, making no money, uh, living on, you know, living on what a guy could get for free. And uh, then uh, obviously trying to put some money in my pocket. So yeah, I, I worked the normal career path, I would say. When you made that transition from being, you know, head of strength conditioning within the college sector, and then you moved over into the tactical realm with one of the groups over in the U.S. There, did you did you apply for that? Did you get headhunted into the role? And what was it like transitioning from college athletics into tactical realm? Right. So, um, kind of two answers in that. How how did I end up there? So. When you go back post 9/11, when they were really looking at uh, what I would say. The acronym is Preservation of the Force and Family, HODA mm -hmm. initiatives. So it started out as pressure on the force and family. They renamed it after a task force said, we need creative solutions for the commander to be able to relieve some of that pressure. Then they turned it into preservation of the force and family. One of the solutions that came out of that task force was development of human performance programs, sports psychology, strength conditioning coach, nutrition, physiotherapy, uh, uh, and human performance advisors to help kind of roll it all up together. So that's how, you know, those programs were stood up. So as those programs were stood up, I personally lost several assistants. So they went out headhunting. They started at the college and university level. They said, hey, where is the best training really taking place? And that's not to pat ourselves at, at the university level, you know, pat ourselves on the back, but we were doing high level training and mm -hmm. it, the funny thing is there is a, in the U.S., there is a very good relationship. The military really likes American football. Football really likes the military. So even when you see the early HP staff set up, they were full of strength and conditioning from the university level. So having lost those assistants a couple of years down the road, I was approached about an opportunity, said no initially was approached again a little bit later. I said, you know, there might be something to this whole tactical strength and conditioning human performance. Um, I kicked that tire. Um, I went out to a place and, and talked to him and spent the weekend there and, and just made the jump. Yeah, just absolutely made the jump. So, um, and I think you, you were asking, you know, how was the transition? Yeah. So the transition really, it was smooth, you know, partly because even as at the university setting, when you're in sports performance, the key root word is perform. So you're coming with, uh, even in the, in the collegiate setting or professional sports setting, 
that sports performance, strength, conditioning, nutrition, all the different domains, you are really there just to help them perform. If you improve uh, biomotor abilities or if you actually lessen the degradation of those, much less outside of performance enhancing, you know, reducing injury and performance enhancement, you're really just part of a spoke on a wheel. And so there's technical, there's technical. And so uh, the strength conditioning component, it was easy to get uh, my head wrapped around it because we're just there to help whomever perform, whether that's tactically or athletically. So that's all we were there to do. And I, I did mention, you know, the military does have that close relationship. Uh, I also had one of my last years at the university setting, I worked with, and this is what makes my journey kind of unusual. I had the opportunity to work with uh, a soft unit. I brought them up. So during our off season, so to speak, I brought up an ODA, an operational deployment alpha, a soft mm. team to help my football guys with leadership tactics and leadership strategies. So I, I was trying to move beyond like the X's and O's of strength conditioning. I was looking more for the whole human development. Yeah. So the irony of it is I was actually working with some people out of Fort Carson uh, with some, some guys and bringing them up to where I was. And then, you know, ironically, I ended up in the tactical community. So I was looking for those leadership lessons from the tactical community. So I did have an appreciation for that. Um, and so the transition really was, was pretty easy. You know, when I actually stepped into it, it was exactly the same as where I came from. And it was completely different in the same sentence. <laughs> Performance oriented, right? Like we talked about athletically and tactically. Uh, and then what we were trying to do is just be value added, to have a return on investment the time you spend with me. So as different as it was, it was completely the same. You're, you're bringing generally accepted sports training principles, you know, specific adaptation to impose demand, frequency, intensity, type, time, variability. You're bringing all these different principles and concepts into the same, you know, from one environment to the other. Now, what you're trying to get out of it is a little bit different, right? The end user is going to be a little bit different, but the things that we hang our hat on and the training principles are the same. So uh, you just got to tweak them and make sure that you're getting the results that you want. You know, performance is king. And, and uh, so it, we had facilities, we had, you know, physiotherapy, sports medicine, nutrition. It looked like a collegiate setting, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, so it's like I said, as, as similar as it was, it was completely different in some regards. Yeah. So with that, what was the, obviously there's a lot of similarities to talk about their trend, but what, was there any big uh, some differences or similarities in terms of culture between what you experienced with college football and then going into the tactical realm? Um, particularly around, I know from chance of Josh and Kate, who said, you know, going into a military environment, having not been former military, and just trying to work hard to get that buy-in from the guys as well. What, right. uh, what was your main findings around that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, really when you look at it, you talked about culture and really the, the, the I guess, the stark differences that I saw uh, because I've never walked one second in the military. And up until a certain point, you know, I didn't even know some of these existed, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't even know some of these outfits and some of these units and some of these, uh, some of these places existed. So, you know, the completely different things is, before I even get to culture is, you know, when you were, when I came from my setting, I literally had eyes on everything that student athlete did. You have these performance centers on the university. They yeah. come to work out in the morning. They eat at the training table there. I watch what they eat. They go to practice. I'm there at practice with them. Uh, I see them in the sports medicine room and the physiotherapy and the cold tubs. And I, I, I literally have eyes on everything that they do. Uh, I know what classes they have that day. So you really are able to track levels of, of what's taking place in their life. When you go into the tactical setting in this military setting, uh, especially where I came from, you know, there are a lot of curtains. Mm -hmm. And so there are about, you know, a two, there's a two hour window that you get a chance to, to engage with that person. Now you might see him in the same building or something like that, but these are adults. They've been successful without you. 
Um, and now this program is presented to them. So in terms of making sure that we give them the right fit for program development in all those different domains, we don't have eyes on them all the time. So they have, there has to be this reciprocation. We have to not only communicate, but we have to connect. They have to be willing to allow that, that trust factor in, right? To get into that circle of trust. And I would say this, and it's a, it's a Stephen Covey principle, and I, I, I live by it, whether it's an athlete or not, but it's the speed of trust. The faster they understand that I'm there to add value to them, and they can get a return on investment, A, I can educate and communicate and connect with them. That allows me uh, a little bit more room to, to do some more impactful things. And we slowly just kind of creep up on it, right? The mission creep, so to speak, if you will. But we can actually start adding some things. So the speed of trust allows us to get to that place a little bit faster. Um, and so, and again, it's not just, when you walk in there, you can't say, like at the university, you're gonna do what I tell you to do. When you walk in there, maybe it's a team leader or something and saying, hey, this is where we are in the calendar. We have training exercises, we're at the range, we're jumping, we gotta go do this, we're doing some other stuff and we're gonna be out of pocket for a month. So uh, as they're doing those things, you have to coordinate with them. So the culture is they are super successful and they are uh, you know, very competitive, but they're a very smart brand too. They, they, they will smell out the BS. No question about it. Uh, they go into chaotic environments every day when they're deployed. And uh, that there are a reason they're special, right? There's a reason they're special. And then the other thing, too, from a cultural standpoint and a human performance uh, program standpoint is the military, they're really, they're starting to be, but even up to this point, there's no long-term athlete development. There just isn't. And so... When we're just working, when we just go in and before the HP programs were stood up before POTA, maybe it was a workout on the wall. Maybe it was a, a workout of the day. And I, I don't want to get into that, but there was no long-term planning. How did that mesh with what they had to do with language learning? What did that do with that to do on the range? How can we incorporate all those scientifically accepted principles to enable human performance optimization? Yeah. but still allow them to develop optimally, technically, and tactically. You know, so, again, we have to understand what they need and, and what, their, what their resources, what we can provide as a resource. So that long-term athletic development, um, just because of what they do, isn't necessarily there. And it makes it hard. It's difficult. But it's a great challenge. You know, we have to be as agile and adaptable uh, to them. With that then, Trent, are you, is that something you guys are currently looking to develop and implement that long-term development model within yep. the guys you're working with? And uh, how do you yeah. see that? Yeah, so, so literally there, there's a big push. So, you know, POTIF developed, when, when POTIF and all these HP programs kind of came into existence, you know, John, there was, there was a little bit of factor because even though I wasn't there on the outset, you know, I, I've talked to guys who literally have been some of the first ones hired, who have been doing it a long time. I've also mm -hmm. talked to te different team guys that were there when all of a sudden they go on Monday and they're working out. And all of a sudden, next Monday, there's a bunch of people there and say, hi, we're the coaching staff, you know, and, yeah. and they're like, oh, okay, great. Who? Um, but, you know, what, what we've tried to do is, is get upstream. You know, we don't want to be the medical model where some of the HP teams were just putting band-aids on these guys. We had to be like, whoa, guys. So before I got into it, some of the first staffs were like, whoa, you know, if you're riding a horse or something, you got to slow him down a little bit. You got to put the brakes on, pull the, pull the reins back. Because these guys, if you look at the traditional modeling of, of injury and onset injury, and we're still way too high. And it hasn't, we've dampened it and attenuated it a little bit, brought it down. But the musculoskeletal injury situation through physical training, through PT, not squadron led, but personal physical training has led to an inordinate amount of guys being, careers being shortened and not optimizing the operator's career life cycle. So the HP teams were said, Hey, go in there and give them a plan, right? So if you're there for two years, that plan started to be a little bit more, okay, it's better than going in day-to-day, week-to-week, or looking on the internet for something. So plans were in place, 
and embedded with those teams and uh, and the soldiers themselves. So that started, you know, where I was at the last place, uh, we actually called kind of well, when special operators came to us uh, and they were already super successful. And we started building these other teams. We called what we had a signing day, just like in the athletics, is that when you sign, commit to us, we sent you a program six months before you came to us. This is what we're going to do. And we're giving you a program. It might look different than what you're doing, but we know what the next 12 months is going to look like for you. And so what got you to us isn't going to get you to the next. And so we saw immediate results. Uh, one of the issues I heard was when people were committing to us, they saw them during assessment and selection. And these guys were super fit and they, boom. And all of a sudden like, hey, congratulations, you made the team. We're gonna see you, you're gonna report in, sometimes it was two months, sometimes it was four months, depending on the cycle. So sometimes four months later, these guys come back and it looked like they ate cheeseburgers and drank beer. You know, and so they were unfit. And so literally they were starting over and guys were getting injured. So I was like, well, that's ridiculous. And it wasn't just me, but when I walked into that environment, I was like, every time we signed an athlete, we gave them the packet to prepare them to have success because that's what performance is. Mm -hmm. Giving someone the best chance of success. It's nothing more. There's no bench press contest when you're downrange. There's no, there shouldn't be, but you know, the, the, these things are performance related and getting them in the best shape gives them the best chance of success through that next pipeline, right? And again, what we can do is, uh, you know, their, their best abilities of language, of shooting, of technical and tactical, whatever it is, is availability. Yeah. And when they're not available, they're not, I, I air quotes, they're not worth anything. And some of those guys will tell you that I'm hurt, I'm banged up, I'm broke. Well, you don't do the team any good. So we're trying to mitigate that. So I think we had success and our command saw that. And so uh, back in the States right now, there's currently uh, a movement and it's happening right now, John, is that they're taking all these really cracking sharp HP teams and they're getting them upstream left of the bank. They're actually getting them out of soft. They're still in soft, but they're getting them to the larger military enterprises because where does soft come from? Well, they come from basic. And they come from combat training. And if those guys are getting there and they're already broke, what's going to happen after 10 years as a soft soldier? You're going to be more broke. So they're taking the concept, shifting upstream, getting left of the bang, and now soft community. I think in three, four, five years, you're going to see the scale start to tip a little bit where these guys are high performers, they've got better education, they've got better training, and they understand the human performance process a little bit more. That goes back to the long answer uh, to the long-term athletic development. So uh, to really just kind of circle back on that. So that's how LTAD is really happening. That sounds awesome, Trent. And the, the fact, I really like that you're sending out that, that program to the guys six months prior to them turning up. Um, yeah. One, obviously helping them get prepped for coming down to see you and what the new training block will look like for them. Also for you guys running your programs, you have, a better idea of what's turning up on your doorstep at the end of the six month uh, program. And 100, 100%. And, you know, we did internal, I'll, I'll, I'll take it one, I'll, I'll dig one layer deeper, but we, they were tracking. So they had stats before I arrived there, but from the physiotherapy standpoint, we also saw too. So we ran this kind of four year data when they come to us, as soon as they walk in, uh, we say, what are your injuries? So boom, sight, reference, level of pain, the physiotherapists were amazing there. And so that team collected the data. We were able to show that fewer people had injuries when they graduated from us and the people that still had injuries had less of, it, less of an injury. And some of those injuries actually occurred during training exercises because that happens when you're, when you're doing military things, military things happen. Mm -hmm. but we reduced injuries of people who brought them to the course. And then we had fewer injuries during the long pipeline they were with us uh, and than they had traditionally. So HP works, it's, it's a long process, right? It's not a microwave, it's a slow cooker. So it just takes time and we gotta let the program work and stuff. So anyway, yeah. 
I find it really interesting as well, trying to say, because obviously trying to implement that new model and getting the guys to buy in and work through it, there must be that challenge with some of the guys who have obviously come through that pipeline prior to these models getting put in place, who have pushed themselves and, you know, have passed through selection because they can tolerate the load and trade and stuff like that just because they've uh -huh. constantly redlined it and then trying to yep. convince them, right, you know, as you said previously, what you've done to get you here is not what's going to help you to get to the next step. Um, I'm sure that's quite a challenge to convince these guys who are studs to get yeah. you know to that level already and be like, right, okay, forget what you've done. This is a new outlook for you. Yeah. So really, and that goes back to the culture. You know, the culture in any military community, much less soft in, in sport. I can go up. I mean, if it's rugby, if it's football, if, if just sport, those are alpha people. Now. Everybody wants to play and perform well. Not everybody wants to prepare to play and perform well. That's the yeah. difference. That's where HP lies. So that Venn diagram, you know, we want them to have a bigger hunk of that HP circle in there, right, around that level of performance and for the operational or the, op the operator. So that HP, again, showing them the return on investment. And it's got to be education. So we really find that, you know, there's, there's so much – I call it interference effect. And I don't mean that in negative. I'm, I'm not trying to downgrade what's on the internet. There's so much good content and stuff. But, you know, people will glom on to anything. So when people are out there reaching for a program, whether it's a, a traditional, hey, I want the Jim Windler 531, or I want the Wolverine X shredded pro, you know, whatever, if you make something up, they're looking for answers. And that's great. And I always say this. I don't want our HP program to be the only program that you use per se, but I want it to be the best. We're going to be the best program you ever come, come in touch with. So mm -hmm. let's educate you through basic education courses, but we're going to communicate with you and make a connection and show you how to do things. And then we're going to apply that in the, in your nutrition, in the DFAC, you know, the dining facility with mental performance strategies. Here's why you think you're performing well with five and a half hours of sleep. Let's see what you feel like with seven hours of sleep, boss, and see how you perform. Let's track HRV. But you got to show it to them. And you have to show operational relevance. If you don't, you're just pounding sand. And yeah. they'll, they'll tell you to go pound sand. And I, and I love that challenge. So it really is the spearhead of, of education, communication, and this is application. Because I, I tell guys, uh, even when they move through this, we'll have some people who are, you know, the soft warrior. Uh, team leaders bringing them in and we're training as a team and stuff like that. But soft operations require non-soft support. So people who support operators are as important as the operators. They'll tell you that. And the operators will tell you that. Like they just can't get dropped in and know it. Well, they need equipment and they need support and they need geo information and, and intel. And so we also train those people who enable, who support the soft effort. And so we always tell those people like, hey, you got to be in the game and in the fight too. You know, your best ability is availability, no different from them. You train with us for 30 days and you'll never go back. Like give us 30 days, 30 workouts. And I'm telling you right now, if you don't, shame on us. But let's in integrate and being embedded into those communities. When you see them down the hall, it kind of, I, I mentioned early on, we don't always have eyes on them. But when these HP teams are embedded, when POTIF allowed them to go into the building and your house right there, the gym's there, the dining facility's there, the physiotherapist is right off the weight room, the strength coach is there. We got into their lives a little bit. And so they started coming down like, hey, coach, what about creatine? Coach, what have you heard of this? Or, you know, so you're, you're meeting them at all these different points. And so that, that immersion and that embedded process, uh, that gets that circle of trust moving a little bit faster. But you know, the culture is they got there on their own. They're tough. Uh, they've, they've redlined. And so teaching them how to, you need to be, so it's easy to say you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. I saw also say you need to be comfortable being comfortable. What is that, coach? Like, you don't have to be dripping in sweat redlined every day. If you have smoke sessions every day, all you're doing is precluding yourself from giving me your best effort tomorrow when I need it. If I say today is a red line day, you will know it, and I want you to hit red line. It's no different than world-class athletes 
they have the polarized training, if you will. I, and I don't, I don't want to get into that. that. That's a whole different conversation. But, you know, we have the hard, easy, whatever. The military is always a slow burn. They're always moving. It's a big aerobic base. It's an endurance-based co uh, community. And, and I don't mean this in a negative way. Outside of some really hard training exercises or if you're trying to become a ranger and you're going through their three different things, you know, whatever, everybody's got their, their stuff. But uh, it doesn't have to be painful. There are times it's going to be painful. But remember, it's training, it's recovery, and it's adaptation. So we have to teach them that. So what we come in and sometimes we say, no, you know, it's that woe thing I mentioned earlier is that as you get old, you know, much less. But to train right, you really have to understand the principles. That goes back to that education. So not bathed in sweat and not laying on the floor thinking like, oh, wow, I just smoked myself. Yeah. It does nothing for me, boss. So it's good because we can be there every day. If we weren't, we would probably just be spinning our wheels. Hey, I'm, I'm going to check on you Monday and maybe Friday. If I can't be there to train them, and then when I need to put the hammer down, we hammer. So they feel the full weight of human performance. When it's an easy day, we have to explain it to them. This is an easy day. It's a yellow or a green or whatever it is. So there, there is that. And so the culture of the military is go, 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 next man up, pain. You know, there's, the only easy day was yesterday. Yeah. We try to break that down. Those are barriers to the optimization of the soft warrior. Yes. And that, I mean, the education side is huge. Like you mentioned yeah. there, Trent, just like explaining what the adaptation you're trying to get from that session. So it's just like, look, we're not redlined, but this is what we're trying to get from this by pulling back that intensity of that volume. And you mentioned um, just how everything integrates in. And I find, especially from my time in sport, a lot of people don't understand that, especially from the athlete's uh, standpoint. It'll be like, oh, you know, I'm following Jim Wendler's 531, which is, you know, a really good simplistic program, but I bolted on to, um, what do you call it? Small blob, like squat program with this running oh. program as well and stuff like that. It's like, you're, you're not going to get anything. You're just going to be completely burned out because you're chasing so many things at this point in time. So I think that education there, like you say, is critical. How everything links into everything and what the adaptations you're trying to get from it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, and again, I go back to where, and again, I've been so blessed to, I, I, my, my background, especially as, as the university setting kind of grew and we had, we had physical therapists, we had orthopedic surgeons, we had top-end nutritionists, we had strength conditioning, we had sports psych. So we had this, we had these teams and stuff. But when I came to the tactical setting, you know, I, I would be able to grab the mental performance person and say, look, you have language immersion or something like that. Like you're going to go in after smoking yourself every day. It's like, how do you know that you're maximizing your language immersion? You know, do you have to, you have to learn something Arabic. Do you have to learn some different language. Like you have to have a technical and tactical skill. You do not have to be elite athletically. You are a decathlete. You know, a decathlete would be considered the world's greatest athlete. It's mm -hmm. arguable, but you know, it, Dave Johnson or somebody, or, you know, hey, you're the world's greatest athlete by the end of the Olympics. Soft soldiers are, I believe, I've used this analogy, but soft soldiers are like that. The decathlete will never be on the podium for any of the events that they run. They won't even make it to the quarterfinals in any event, maybe. But they are the world's greatest athlete. Soft soldiers in the community and, and military and tactical they have to be elite of head, heart, courage, and tactical and technical skill. So they can't just spend time training. So if they're taking away from tact tactical and technical development and cognitive impairment because they're in a fatigued state all the time, they're not optimizing those things they need to be elite at. And so we go chasing. To me, the physical side is kind of the easiest side for most guys, uh, you know, guys, gals. It's, it really is because you can go out, you can – but you have to have that combination and be that kind of military decathlete and that you've got to be really good in a lot of stuff, but you've got to be elite in your technical and tactical because that's when things go south, right? That's when things, because if, if we didn't and we were in, in, say, not to make light of it, but if we were engaged in small wars, we would just send over, hey, I'm going to send team A over. Here's my bench press. Here's my 100 meter. Here's my pole bolt. Here's my VO2 max. And here's my blood work. We're yeah. sending these, let me see yours. It doesn't work that way. 
You know, just because we're physically superior doesn't work that way. We have to have the mindset like we have to be superior in chaotic environments. Improved abilities to a certain level allow that. If we're spending so much energy on those and chasing all those, it will actually degrade those abilities. And that is, like my guys will tell you, that's no bueno. So after they learn that, that's like no good for anybody. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's great, Trent. 100% agree with you on that. Um, I just want to pull it back a little bit here for a second. But obviously, prior to going into um, the human performance field within the tactical realm, you were working in the, in the U.S. at the university sector, like the college um, environment. Yes, How sir. did you find making that transition then, going from being a head of strength, strength and conditioning, so overseeing your department and other strength coaches, to move into you know, head of human performance and overseeing a multitude of other um, performance programs within that, so your physiotherapy, psychology, nutrition, all those other things? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, so I found it was a very unique uh, environment. Um, and again, so when you have these different world-class subject matter experts, I mean, and really they operate independently and they're and they they they're responsible for their job. So moving, you know, it, it was good for me to have that experience, to be able to report to uh, you know, administration and, and higher ups in the university setting. So boom, getting the information and being the one voice for, for our efforts and being able to oversee kind of program design. How do we all work together? We can't be siloed efforts. Yeah. I think I, meant, I mentioned earlier, we have to be integrated. So literally we can have this 360 degree perspective. So we had it for the athletes. Cause again, I, I told you, we always had eyes on the athletes. We, we knew, we knew if they broke up with their significant other, we knew when their birthday was, we knew they had a bad day, you know, whatever it was, they don't like rain, I don't know. But in this community, we have to, we have to within certain frameworks, share that information. So our physiotherapy, they had their office right next to the weight room. And so they would be in there seeing how the guys moved and grooved and stuff like that. So the concept of enabling the best chance of success and performance, that all stood pat. But having these people um, uh, that sometimes work in remote settings, uh, it, was, it was challenging. And it was being able to, to go to the command and have everybody get as much information of like, this is why, you know, this is why we need to have this training program, to have everybody kind of understand how we all work together. Mm -hmm. If people were coming from different environments, so in the military, in that human performance sector, you know, when you're in the university setting, everybody kind of came through the university. You know, they've worked at other places. Not everybody. Uh, they might have been independent physiotherapists. They might have been independent performance dietitians. So when they get there, maybe not everybody knows how to work within the team setting. So being able to establish processes and 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 the the communication style, that was probably uh, one of the biggest things. Actually, developing a team because the military. Uh, and if you look at the history of the military and how, you know, the formation of JSOC, they kind of came together because they threw all these military all-stars together and it didn't work. And so a blue ribbon panel figured out like, hey, we have to train together. So, you know, Joint Special Operations Command, Joint JSOC kind of emerged from that. They're like, hey, we got to train together and do these things. Well, same thing, kind of that communication. We just can't take rock star people in all these different areas and domains of human performance. So it was a little bit different in trying to establish those lines and, and processes of communication uh, because sometimes people are better working in a silo. We need people to work across, push information out across, up, down, all over the place. So that was probably one of the biggest challenges. Uh, and then having people really understand like, you know, how to have that connection with, with people. Again, it goes back to the communication aspect where, hey, just because they're, they're broken, you have to find a way to reach them if you're a physiotherapist. And I don't like using that word broken, so if they're injured. So you have to find a way to connect with these people. And so, you know, that, that's part of the process. And, and so that was a lot different. The athletes kind of in the university setting will always come to you. You always know what's going on. You have to build the bridge to these people. Again, you know, you really have to develop processes that make it easy. Because the other thing too, John, and, and you know this, in the tactical setting, in the military setting, your biggest battle space is time. Yeah. 
there is so much, they get such a small block of time to really engage with you. And then they get crushed by admin, then they get crushed with training, and then they got you know social life, family, they got everything else going on. Some people have long commutes to military bases and stuff. And so really the we have to do it in the most effective, efficient way to have the whole HP program to you know to, to leverage the whole HP program with that person. And we have to do it uh, so uh, so quickly and so effectively and so efficiently. There's just those challenges. So, so really setting up processes and communication, uh, lines of communication is, is the best way to do it. it it's hard, it, there's no question, it's difficult. But yeah, yeah. We, we also, um, yeah, I think that really is communication. Now, Trent, obviously you started off within the tactical realm, you're working over in the US with a couple of groups over there, and now you're over in Belgium, more based within NATO's sort of stuff with their soft programs. Can you just talk to us a little bit about, you know, what the differences you've noticed in the approaches of different nations um, to their human performance programs? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's great because within the NATO alliance, the partners, so not, you know, there are X number of countries that have declared soft communities and soft elements, okay? Yeah. So not everybody in NATO has a soft element. So within those countries that, that have those, um, the, the biggest difference just from a longitudinal standpoint is the soft community in the U.S., you know, some of those guys, gals might be retiring when they're 40, 45. In the European nations, in the military, it's a career. You know, yeah. you're getting done at 60, 62, 65. So you really have to think about optimizing that, that career window. You have to open up that aperture because they're going to go for another 20 years where some of these guys in the U.S., they're done it like I said, mid 40s. So, you know, even though they're not downrange doing maybe what they did when they were younger, they're still in the tactical operations center. They're still commanding. They're still in leadership positions. Um, and so that takes on a different element in itself because now they've got to be physically sharp. If you're in pain, you don't think as well. If you're kind of uh, broken down, beat up a little bit from all the years that you've, you've been downrange and you've done kind of the more physical element of, uh, of, the, of the military side, you know, how are you going to be as a leader? And we want that institutional knowledge to be within that setting. So, so that's the biggest difference. I, I understood that when I came over. The other thing is there's a lot, there's been a lot of success with HP programs in the NATO community because a lot of the, the soft community in NATO has cross-trained with, so some of the, the Marine type teams will cross with SEAL type teams back in the States, you know, um, you'll see group guys communicating and working with, so there's been a lot of crosswork. So they do, every country has a, you know, kind of a special operations command. They understand the concept of human performance. Now, I will go on to say that everybody's doing the best they can, but really we've been able to view this in the aspect that there's kind of two or three different levels, you know, and, and to, to parse it out is, there's been great HP efforts with some countries that, uh, that have resources, and it comes down to resources. Can we dedicate finances uh, or, or bring people over that can serve in the human performance capacity? Sometimes they leverage university settings. You know, sometimes they go out and they, they work with their Olympic sports teams. There are great, great HP teams in the NATO soft community that do a great job. They have money, they have time, they have resources, they've made a commitment to it. So I would say they're kind of a tier one, they're the gold standard, if you will. And then there's a kind of a second level, a tier two, where they maybe don't have a full HP staff. Maybe they've got a coach, or maybe they've got a clinical psychologist, but maybe that's all they have. And the military, you know, they've got some training facilities, but they don't do anything real hard and fast programmatic, but they're trying to get there. And so they engage us on a daily and weekly basis. We're working with a, a lot of different people uh, to help them get over that next barrier, if you will. And again, it comes down to resources. It's not for lack of intent or, or understanding. And then, you know, there's kind of that, that third tier where they've been kind of pre-contemplative and they've kind of, all right, now we know we understand that they've reached out and like, What's the first step? And it's not that they don't really know, but like, how can we get there a little bit faster? Mm -hmm. And so, 
you know, to show value and maybe lessons learned and, and scar tissue from, you know, ways that have been done the, in, in prior by other nations in, in NATO, we're able to kind of leverage that institutional knowledge and, and share those lessons learned and to kind of facilitate maybe a quicker step um, to that, that next level. So, you know, it comes down to resources, uh, time and element, but everybody that we talk to has seen, uh, you know, the POTIF effort and the other NATO nations that have good HP programs that are robust, they have seen reductions in musculoskeletal injuries. They've seen communication, education. So guess what happens now when these guys are in these HP programs, and we talked about the education piece a little bit, they become force multipliers. These guys are gonna move into leadership positions. So if it's important to them, they saw how it affected them positively, they are gonna go into a leadership position and there's gonna be this continuation. And so that's why we're trying to get everybody engaged because you know, if a country doesn't have it, the scales of, of, of HP justice, if you will, are a little bit heavier uh, against. And so we're trying to balance those scales a little bit. Getting people involved through education and an understanding is going to actually kind of speed that process up for those countries who are kind of struggling with that effort right now. And how do you find with the, obviously all the different nations there as well, Trent, just their their buy-in into the programs and how do they look i know me and you chad before about just the differences between the, the sport model from the us with regards to your college structure and how things are here in the uk um, and we just don't have that same uh performance model as you guys have over there we do have in some institutions and with some it could be like across multiple sports or in some it's just one or two um, and not nearly at the same sort of depth, I'd say, as you guys have over the U.S. for those guys who will go probably through college performance, strength, conditioning, and stuff like that, and then transition into the military, whereas a lot of guys here are more, I'd say, bodybuilding-based training a lot of times, and just the, the traditional high rep endurance sort of running sort of stuff as well. So what, what's the biggest things you find with that with regards to the different countries you're working with in NATO? So when we've engaged countries, and you're, and you're so spot on with that, John, is that you know, one of the things that we talk about, so uh, when we have our best engagements at different conferences or countries have come to visit us uh, here, but when we talk with them, you really have to get an understanding of uh, and have a cultural awareness. And so what we're trying to, to say is that, okay, you don't have this kind of this robust performance tunnel, right? They're coming through this, uh, or funnel, sorry. They come through this funnel, so they had through sport at the high school or secondary level. They probably lifted weights back in the state. They probably played sport. They've gone to a university or an academy setting. So they've been engaged. So that's what they know. And so they take all that built up kind of, uh, and all that residue from high performance training into the soft community. So when we look at countries that don't have that, that process and they don't have that funnel, uh, you know, we talk about, what are your musculoskeletal rates? What are your dropout rates? What are your watch? You know, so when we look at kind of across the operational life cycle, there's recruiting, assessing, selecting, training, and then guys are, you know, countries we always hear about, even in the U.S., is that, and, and not that the U.S. does it right, but uh, everybody talks about retention. We talked about keeping that institutional knowledge in there. Well, retention, that R, starts all the way back at recruiting. So we have to find out that, again, if we can improve the, the broader military enterprise, that's where the soft community comes from, right? There's a selection pool. They're coming out of that. So if we can get upstream of the soft community and really basic education in the broader military enterprise, basic training, understanding the fundamentals, again, the resources might not be there, but let's do the best what we can with education because each one of those people who see the return on investment, again, I go back to being a force multiplier. So some countries are very limited with resources and they don't have, um, you know, really uh, kind of a, a cultural uh, training, high performance funnel that maybe that some other that countries have. So it goes back to, let's look at how we can give you a better product in the soft selection and let's keep getting upstream of that. And so some countries are challenged, but the soft community in those countries, they recognize the problem because they're looking at attrition rates, injury rates, that they're not able to meet their numbers 
you know? So, and they're looking at people are less inclined now to, to, to join the military. And so, you know, there's these things that, that kind of overlap, you know, which one comes first? And you have to have the numbers and, and keep guys available uh, through performance training, or can you, can you have a better pool of candidates upstream? So trying to show them the value of properly placing HP efforts, and you don't have to have everything. You don't have to have the proper, the, the, the proper gym. You don't have to have the proper, you know, equipment and things like that. Take these concepts of intensity, take these concepts of training, take these concepts of this long-term athletic development, you know, and properly place them along that pipeline of recruiting, assess, select, train, and retain. Um, that's the way we try to get about it. No easy answer because everybody wants to see results, right? And so, like I said, it can't be a microwave mindset. It's got to be that crock pot. You have to find human performance is a commander's program. Human performance is charged. My mission set, our mission set is to, to find unique, inventive, uh, valuable products, develop valuable products that allow us to strengthen the commander's hand in the, in the area of human performance. So that's what we're charged to do. And so when the commander says, hey, these are our efforts, we're forward thinking five years, seven years, what's the next ridge line? We're already contemplating, okay, how do we do that? Well, let's go look at assessment and selection. You know, I talked about the signing day process early on in this conversation. We saw issues with guys coming out of assess and select and showing up at our doorstep, and it wasn't good. And so if you're going to put a price tag on it, and I don't mean to, to demean anyone, but they're worth $200,000. So if we can bring five extra people across the goal line, you know, score with those five, we just did a million dollars. We saved a million dollars because we got them through graduation. Doesn't seem like a lot, but do that a couple of times, you know, at three or four places, and all of a sudden you got multiples of millions of dollars. And so if you have to, for the bean counters and the purse string holders to put a, put a dollar figure on it, that's, a, that's important for them to know. That's, a, that's another return on investment. So to leverage human performance in some of the countries that don't have all the assets, a financial figure on it. And 100% agree with that, uh, Trent. Obviously, from our backgrounds, we are very much focused on the human element and building those uh, relationships and those interactions. But as you say, the, the purse string holders, there's always going to be that financial element to them. And if you've got a guy, as you say, early on in his career who's worth 200,000 getting injured, it's one thing. But then down the line, when you've got someone who's been through multiple schools and multiple like investments and stuff within them you're talking you know a million and a half yeah. dollars invested in that one individual so if that person yeah. is down you've got an asset you just can't use anymore that's a, that's exactly right and you know if they see value in that program I, I i'm telling you it's a recruiting tool it's a retention tool and the other thing you know why these hp programs were stood up is that it allows the families you know, it gives the family support because it, it offers a, a, a better understanding. You know, like I said, they get access, they, they feel better about themselves. That leads, the personal leads into the, uh, the, press, the professional leads into the personal, the personal, excuse me. You can't divide the two. So, it, you know, it helps everyone involved. There's no question about that. Really great in-depth uh, approach over that on different nations and setting up those uh, HP programs. Obviously, you've been involved now, uh, Trent, in the tactical field for a number of years. I was wondering, you know, what, what do you say are the key lessons you've learned over the years you've been involved within this field? And how does that help shape you going forward with your, not only your career, but how you, you know, built up your programs? Yeah, so, you know, the lessons learned is that, and I'll, I'll touch on this again, is they're physically special tactical or physically special and we need to understand that and if you ask those guys they will tell you they're not elite athletes so the sports performance model covering the domains and having that 360 degree perspective is great the sports performance kind of programming is not great it's not intended for them the principles that underpin human performance are applicable to them so Again, I, I completely understand now they're elite of head and heart and tactical and technical um, of skill sets. So they have that decathlete profile. 
you know, I think it's, I've learned that I've got to show them the return on investment. If you invest time with me, I said, I'll say it again, time is the biggest battle space that we have in the military for human performance. It absolutely is. Because when it all comes down to it, if they've got to get to the range and jump, guess what's going to get whacked? It's going to be human performance. I can go in and maybe do a 15-minute Tabata smoke session, whatever I'm going to do, and that's it. I got my workout in for that. Well, so we have to show the return on investment. Time spent with me is time invested for you. So that ROI is absolutely critical. Um, you know, the trust, I talked about the speed of trust communicating with them that everybody communicates but you got to connect so me being able to go and and bring our staff to their training exercises take them out get up in the planes with them understand what they're doing not only they see us in a different light but i get an understanding the first couple of exercises i was asked to go on so i was able to give our team a better understanding of and if you tell me hey here's a piece of paper here's what we're doing we're smart, we can get it. But when you go there and see it, man, the aha, you know, it's that moment. It's like, oh, man, serendipity, I get it now. That's a little bit different. My programming better reflect the realities of that situation. So I would say the lessons learned is, is really getting to know that. I knew, every, I, I haven't played every sport, but I know sport, I get it. Man, you have to be immersed in that. You have to learn the technical and the tactical aspects of that community. And they appreciate that, but I appreciate it much more because it allows me to fine tune, you know, my, my chisel and my hammer a little bit so I can carve out a little bit uh, better programming. And that affects my programmatics, you know. So I would think those are my most important lessons learned. Thank you very much for that, Trent. Now, with every guest I have on here, I'll always ask them just for the, what they are engaging for their own continual professional development trend. And so on that note, you just give us a book, an app or website recommendation that you found useful for your own education or your own development. Yes. And so I, you know, there's so much information out there. I, I, I've, I've tried to really immerse myself in, in some of the, the, the tactical information. So I would say that I'm a huge fan of either the UK or US version of the National Strength and Conditioning Association. They have a tactical strength and conditioning certification, but they also have a publication. And I think it, it brings people together from all over the community, fire, first responders, police, SWAT, uh, soft elements, you know, whatever. And so they have a great resource. And so that's, it's not necessarily a book, but it's, it, it's a great resource. Um, and I think people should look into that because the education component is, is wonderful. The website I really, I look at because they've got great product on there. It's called the Human Performance Resource Center and it's HPRC. It's delivered out of the US, but it touches every domain of deployment, non-deployment, human performance, temperature, hydro. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And they have, some of the smartest and brightest people in the US, you know, but they really push out great information. They have a lot of pre-built product in there. Um, so I really like that website. So those are kind of my two go-tos. I'm reading a lot of different books and stuff. Um, and so uh, way too many to mention. No problem, Trent. Thank you very much, mate. I'll make sure I'll stick those into our show notes. Um, Trent, Thank you very much. I know you're a busy guy, so thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat to me. You dropped a lot of great information here. I've made a ton of notes, and I think anyone listening to this is going to find this uh, episode very, very valuable to listen to. If anyone who's listening wants to get in touch with you or follow up with you, what's the best ways they can stay in touch? Yeah, so I'm not huge on social media just because of the environment and everything, yep. but I have a, an Instagram. It's real Coach Greener. Please feel free to reach out and, and grab me. I have a Twitter account, and I love Twitter because there's so many good things that people can share. Uh, but I'm Coach T Greener on that. DM me. Uh, you know, I love listening and learning from other people. I'm going to learn more from everybody else than you'll ever get out of me. So, uh, and I want to build my network over here, just like being able to, to follow you and actually be able to talk to you and give you a tremendous boon. Those are my two best sources. Cool. No problem, Trent. I'll stick those once again in our show notes just so anyone who wants to reach out can do so. 
Um, Trent, thank you very much, buddy. It's been a privilege to sit down and chat to you, and thank you for being so accommodating with moving stuff around in your schedule. This has been insightful, and take care, buddy. John, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. We need, we need more of it. Thank you. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you very much. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.